a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... Look down, they're cutting my shirt off, oh, they're bringing me, trying to bring me back to about it, is, you know, doing what I'm doing, and I'm probably going to me, you need to pick one right now because I'm tired. I mean, and uh, I chose recovery. So just to be clear, this is a conversation you're having with a guardian angel. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. If you're uh, looking for information about the opioid epidemic, if you're looking for information on how to talk to the doctor, talk to your family, or even talk to yourself, there are a wealth of knowledge right there at KnowYourScript.org. Do you need help learning how to talk to yourself? Sometimes I do. I think I think self-talk is important. I had something planned, but sometimes talking to yourself is important. No, I, I actually teach people healthy self-talk all the time. Because I think there's a lot of negative self-talk that goes through everyone's mind almost every day, whether it's in the gym or it's in the yard or it's in your relationship. You're just beating yourself up. I was up. talking to a good friend of mine last night, and he was realizing how much negative self-talk he does. And, and and sometimes you don't even know you're doing it until somebody, oh, yeah. somebody goes, hey. Those are called negative automatic thoughts. They just happen, happen for years for most of us. And so those little gnats fly around, negative automatic thoughts. Well, you're a clinical psychologist, so you're probably a perfect person to ask this question. Yeah. Where does that start? Does that start from your parents? Does it start from an incident when you were younger? It's unlikely to start from one incident. Uh-huh. Um, it's usually... Uh, having a lot of negativity around you. So children who grow up in an environment where parents, sometimes parents are modeling a lot of negative self-talk of their own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes their their voice, which is the child's external voice when they're young, becomes negative and puts the child down. It can also uh, sort of happen organically by, you know, people who are a little bit higher, higher anxiety folks just by, by nature. They, they can be a little more self-aware and, and self-critical. So when you're helping somebody do some positive self-talk, what are some of the things that you uh, help them with? I mean, I mean, we got so many people listening to this podcast. Yeah. Let's give them a little takeaway. So you get them a mirror. I do that. Say, no, I do that. Oh, I, know I was going to say do. I do that. No, I talk I in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was drinking, the mirror talked back. I know. Yeah, those are good stories. Um, no, uh, so you don't. it doesn't work to just counter the negative self. If you're just like, if you're like, oh, man, I'm an idiot. I'm not. I'm really smart. That doesn't work, right? Yeah, like the Stuart Smalley. Yeah, yeah. the Stuart Smalley uh, positive affirmations. I know people love the positive affirmations, and there's nothing wrong with them. But if you're really struggling with negative self-talk, it's important to first spend some time just being aware. I, I would say start by writing it down. Instead of trying to correct it at first, spend, you know, get your notes out on your phone and spend a whole day or two writing down all your negative self-talk so that you can look at it. Mm -hmm. And then we learn how to reframe it and challenge it and say, well, is there a different explanation for why I'm feeling this way? You know, I'm an idiot. Well, okay, instead of just countering it, why don't we say, 
What's what's a different reason for why I'm feeling this way? Usually you get to another issue like, well, I'm actually afraid or fearful as I go into this uh, this job interview and I'm worried I'm not going to get it. So that's where that negative self-talk came from. So we work on the fear instead of just trying to counter the self-talk. So you kind of have to dissect the thought because uh-huh. I know when I was doing this negative self-talk and I and I've told this on the podcast before, uh, I would get in the car and I would scream, I hate myself. Mm-hmm. And I truly felt like I hated myself at that point. But if I were just going to do the opposite and go, you're awesome, yeah. my mind would be like, you're lying. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah you'll lose that battle every time. Yeah. But when you were when you were getting in the car and, and yelling, I hate myself, what was going on like i'm drinking too much i've got a failed marriage my job's not happy with me and you know what i mean but there you go there are three areas of intervention so you could say you know what it's not that i hate myself it's actually that i have three major areas of my life that i'm really struggling with and i've been trying to handle them on my own Mm -hmm. and it's just not working so in a way i'm upset with myself i'm disappointed with myself for not being able to handle those three areas of my life Maybe it's time I reached out and got some help with all three. All right. So then the negative self-talk kind of takes a backseat and eventually goes away. You know, but I, I, I mean, I like the, the part of dissecting it and trying to figure out what the root of it really is, because a lot of times we don't do that. We live in such a microwave society, such a fast paced moving world that a lot of times we just take the, the lowest common denominator yeah. and just go with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's that self introspection that is so important that one of the resources I actually learned in recovery is, you know, let's do some inventory. Let's mm-hmm. see what it is. Because if you did break down the inventory, chances are there are some things that I'm doing well. And that I could probably highlight well, and, and, and put my energy Chances are, toward. for almost anyone, most of what you do, you're doing well. Mm-hmm. Most of your behaviors and things are, are very productive and good. There may be a few that are kind of overshadowing all that good stuff because they're really hitting rock bottom in certain areas of life. But most people, most of what they do all day is, is really good stuff. And I would say this is a good plug for therapy, actually. A lot of times people think, oh, you know, I have to wait till I'm really broken. You know how I don't like that term. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, go into therapy and then I'll have to be in therapy for the rest of my life. And it's like, no, why don't you say, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're like, you know what? I do that a lot. I do a lot of negative self-talk. Why not call up a therapist and say, you know what? I'd like to come in for just a few sessions, maybe three or four, mm-hmm. and talk about something specific. I don't really want to go over my whole life. Let's just talk about negative self-talk. And if all you did was go in and in three or four sessions learn how to correct your negative self-talk, wow. One more tool for the huge, tool belt. Right? Yeah. You know, my grandpa used to say, and uh, he swore, but I won't do it because we're on the podcast. Uh-huh. He'd say, one old crap erases ten attaboys. <laughs> and if you think that's, about it, that's it, probably it's true. true. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you can go through your whole day and everyone go, attaboy, good job, good job. But as soon as you hear, oh, crap. That you forget about all those attaboys. Kind of erases all the positive. And, yeah. and, and you focus on that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. And that's why it's so important. Uh, we just released a, a clip on Facebook uh, a couple days ago from producer Josh. And it was perception. And you were talking about the importance of perception. Mm. And, and, and that really kind of goes back to that is where we focus in our energy. And what are we looking at? I know I'm an eternal optimist. but And you say that somewhat learned and somewhat inherited. But if we could fo- focus and force ourselves to look at the right side i think it'll be a little bit easier on ourselves oh definitely everybody can learn to be more optimistic and positive no matter where you're at right now 
All right, I've got something for us today before we get to our de- our guest. His name is Travis Whitaker. You might know him from Facebook and the Car Talk segments where he helps people share their stories. But I was trying to find something to talk about today for me and you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's five encouraging trends for the addiction treatment. These are five positive things that are going on in the recovery world oh, cool. right now. Okay. Uh, the number one is public perception is becoming more positive. Oh, I'd, I'd agree with that. And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, even more so than the past couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every year it becomes more positive. I tell you when I'm out and about and I'm emceeing events or I'm at my kid's uh, dance recital or whatever, inevitably somebody will come up to me and we'll get to talking about recovery and how they're in recovery. And it, it's not like we're in the back hiding or the stigma is fading because so many people are willing to open up and talk about their experience and and then talk about all the good stuff they're doing in recovery. So I yeah, that's I agree with that. 100%. And I think this podcast is one of those examples of yeah, where we probably got the people, main one, right? Well, I didn't want to, you know, you know, okay, it is. Uh encouraging trends in addiction medicine. And this is saying that you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that can help you. And, you know, well, I think the addiction medicine one of the main contributions to that movement uh, is that there's scientific research backing up and helping us understand why people become addicts and 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 it's not just the old-fashioned thought that it you know it's a you know weak morals you know that you're a weak person that you're just uh, partying and giving it into you know that sort of decadent life that there are real reasons why, mm-hmm. and then the the addiction medicine. What there are medis, medical treatments that are available now to help uh, with with recovery. So yeah, uh, this next one uh, it might be controversial. It shouldn't, but in the recovery world, it is. It's harm reduction is working. And when they say harm reduction, uh, that means something different to everybody in recovery. But what they're citing as uh, evidence of that is like a Narcan. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For people who are overdosing, this is the way to bring them back in there. People mm-hmm. are going to have that. And another one is like a clean needle exchange. Right. You know, some people are going to be out there. They're, they're doing what they're doing anyways. If we can help provide ways so they don't get more sick, a safer experience. And, and that's where it gets a little bit gray for some people. But for some people, sure. But that's just what they're saying. Uh, another one is laws are more supportive than ever. And I think that's true. We've talked a lot about that on the show. You know, where it used to be just punitive. If you got in trouble, they would send you there. Lock you up. And they would make it hurt. Now yep. there's resources inside the jail. There's uh, resources uh, through the drug court uh, that they're going to help you. And The fact that there is a drug court. Yeah. Or the expungement process mm-hmm. or a lot of these things. I remember you well, know, the program you went through 24 seven, yeah. which is getting ready to launch statewide, which was a great way to help me become uh, a productive member of society well, and allow me to have a driver's you license. You can't get around, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was like, you're now increasing my responsibilities, but you're handcuffing me to my house. And they use, they're using, I think, common sense and technology to be able to give a person an opportunity to earn back their, their right to work and their their ability to provide for themselves and their family and, and they're still holding you accountable for but you're still very accountable twice a day yeah. you, didn't, you didn't go on vacation uh-uh. leave you didn't leave the state for a year because every morning and every night you had to go in and, and blow and prove you weren't drinking yeah and we're coming up on my three-year anniversary of that and we'll talk about that coming up in some future episodes because i mean thinking back over three years <sighs> A lot has happened and a lot of amazing things have happened. And it's all because of recovery in which I owe so much. The last one is 
we know more than ever before. And I think this is the most vital one is that we are learning so much more about addiction. But, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was a disease that no one talked about. No one understood. And it was shameful. Mm -hmm. And so much that anonymous had to be put in the name so people would feel okay going to talk to other people about a similar disease. Yeah. And and that's, you know, I think uh, AA, uh, when it started, was so... It was so important for it to be anonymous because that was the culture that everyone was living in. And mm-hmm. you couldn't get help uh, if you didn't have uh, that anonymity because you'd lose your job, you'd lose your standing in your family, all those things. Now, I'm so glad that anonymous maybe isn't necessary anymore. If you're an AA person, I, I understand that's your, your point of view. But as a culture, we don't need to be anonymous anymore. In fact... Uh, we've kind of grown past that, I hope, to where now we can openly in public on social media, on podcasts, uh, we can support each other and talk about it. I remember my uh, therapist, his name was Eddie, and he was at Pinnacle Recovery. And uh, I've said this on the podcast before, so if you've heard it before, just bear with me. But he goes, um, drinking's not your problem. And I go, huh? What? I'm pretty sure drinking's my problem. That's why I'm here. And he goes, no, your problems are your problems. And drinking is your solution to your problems. Now, of course, down the line, drinking really became a major problem. But that's what we're learning now. Is that- what did that help? How did that help you, though? Like, what insight did you get from that? That it was the sol- that it was a solution to problems, and it was the only solution that I knew how to cope with them. And then it became a big problem. But the reality was is that when I was talking to loved ones, and I was talking to um, you know my employers or whatever, and they say drinking's your problem, and that's all they saw was the drinking was the problem. But if you peel, peel those layers back. I had some serious problems that I had to address, that I had to get down to the root cause of, you know, why am I doing these things? Why am I running away from things? What am I numbing from? Uh, what is making me uncomfortable? Because for the longest time, any time got uncomfortable, beer yeah. or alcohol. That was my quick answer. And, and guess what? It worked majority of the time. Well, and that's a that's a really, really important principle and behavior change that Eddie was going after there that was, you know, drinking got you here, like where you're at today in, in recovery uh, center trying to get better, you know, drinking caused caused you to be here. Caused a lot of damage. Right? I mean, I'm, damage. I'm not downplaying the fact that but I had a drinking problem. But if we problem. take drinking away, the, the things that motivated your drinking, mm-hmm. the reasons that you drank, those are still there. And if we can't get in and work on those then you're not really in a healthy recovery. You might just be a dry, uh, drunk. A dry drunk or you might just be sober. But we've talked about, you know, s- sobriety isn't really the goal. The goal is recovery. Mm-hmm. And part of recovery is going back layer after layer and finding out what's led me to this point in my life. But 20, 30 years ago, if someone was an addict, it, they were just a bad person because they got right. bit by the disease. And Well, know. that far back, people didn't even think of it as disease. It was, you know, faulty character. Yeah. No like, morals. Yeah. And, and, and that's not the truth. It, and we prove it time after time when people come in and sit down in that chair that Travis is to tell their story of how they got into their addiction. And, and, and there, there's commonalities in a lot of it. And that's what's amazing is that once you strip that back and you go back to the root cause, we can help you recover. We can help you get to where you need to be and give you a full life. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I love this. Uh, what's one of those things? For you, like what was one of those things that you think 
had to have been, I mean, you're three years sober coming up here next month. Mm -hmm. So have you worked on some of those things? Can you give the audience an example of one of those things that motivated or, or influenced your drinking that you've had to go work on? Honesty with myself and not trying to make everybody happy. And, and, and just, I thought that was my job. My only value rests in if you were having a good time. Mm-hmm. If you weren't having a good time, I felt like a failure. Well, yeah, and, and you kind of sought employment that kind of... Validated met, that. Yeah, yeah. The, and, 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 and that you was... literally got paid to make other people laugh and be And happy. I thought, and I held on to it so tight, the TV job, the radio job, that that was my identity. I figured out what my identity is better now than ever before. I'm a dad. I'm a boyfriend. Uh, you know, I am selfish, you know, and, and, and I do things that I want and I try not to do that. And so it was figuring out who I really was and, and not who I was perceived to be. I crossed the line. I bought into the hype. I tried to make everybody happy all the time. And the reality is you can't do that. And I tried to do it. And even when I was down, some alcohol would give me some courage, make me feel okay, and go out and try to do it. But now if I'm sad, I'll be sad. And if I want to make you laugh, I'll make you laugh. If I don't feel like I want to, I don't, I'm not obligated to. I'm, it's not my job. My job is to be the best dad I can, the yeah. best boyfriend I can, and the best person I can. Everything else is just extra, and it just makes it that much nicer. But I'm not required to do anything else. Yeah. Would you um – would you say then you're a more authentic person, a more authentic version of yourself now? hundred percent. I think I'm more authentic. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have bad days. Uh, I have good days. Uh, and you can let people know, hey, I'm having a bad day. Yeah. But I don't think you used to do that ever. No, no. I would always say, it's okay. It's okay. Like my mom says, if she ever hears me say it's okay again, she's going to blow a casket. Yeah. And a gasket or a casket? Both. Okay. You know what I mean? Let's start with the gasket. Casket's pretty yeah. that's severe. Well, I hate it when you do that to me. We're going to wrap it up here. We're going to introduce you to Travis Whitaker. That's authentic. I love that about you, man. I know. See? I do. I will say this. Just I know we're wrapping up, but back in the day uh, when we did like TV and stuff together, and I I guested for your show, uh, and you would never, I never heard you admit to anything like life was hard in your life at all. Oh, now, if we're walking in and out of the building and I ask you how it's going, you'll always give me a real answer. And I think that's a testament to what you're saying. I, I've noticed that. Much, well, I, I the authenticity has, has happened. And I owe a lot to you. I really oh, do. Well. I listen to you. It may not look like it, but I do. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Coming up, our guest today on Project Recovery is Travis Whitaker. You might know him from Facebook videos called Car Talk. He's been 12 years sober, but he's got a story to tell. You're listening to Project Recovery. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness.
I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. He's been here from the get-go. And uh, would you say that you've learned quite a bit about recovery since the very first podcast? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think if you go back and listen to the first couple episodes, I make it clear that that's not my specialty. My mm-hmm. specialty is, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, anxiety disorders, and things like that, which all w- ties into uh, you know, uh, substance abuse yeah. because, uh, I realized early in my career, I wasn't going to get out of, uh, having patients who are abusing substances. I work with teenagers and young adults and wow. So, you know, early on, I got a lot of experience working with people one-on-one and, in, and with families where substances were a problem, usually secondary to their anxiety. And that's why they were seeing me. But, you know, you start working with them in those capacities. And then when we started doing this show and having people come in person after person and tell their story, uh, it's been sort of like a little seminar for me. I've been learning a lot and then I'll learn something here and I'll go look it up and read up on it. So to some degree, I feel like I'm becoming more of an expert in substance abuse and and like our show promotes recovery is what I really like and looking at things like mindfulness and alternative forms of treatment. So yeah, it's been fantastic. I, I feel like I learn something every week when I when we do the show. Our guest is twelve years sober. His name is Travis Whitaker. Would you say every day you learn more about the recovery world? I mean you've got twelve years under your belt. Some people would look at you like you've got it all figured out. Oh, I don't have it figured out. It's, it's a process. It's every day. It's a different part of the journey and finding out what works. You know, what I do know is that I have a choice when I wake up every morning. Mm-hmm. I have a choice to use or not use. I'm at that point in my life where it doesn't matter how much stress, doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I just play the tape all the way through and I know that that's not the answer to any, anything. They have a meme on uh, Facebook and I love that because that's where I get all my information. Uh, <laughs> and it's got uh, Robert Downey Jr. on it and people go, he goes, he goes, you know, I could have a drink today, but then again, I got plans for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not going to go along with that. How old are you now, Travis? I am 49. So, Travis, where does your journey into addiction begin? It started at the age of 25, and uh, I remember playing basketball. I always got hurt playing in churches. Mm-hmm. It was always just <laughs> – For those who don't know outside yeah. of the state of Utah, church ball is vicious. Brutal. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, everybody gets black <laughs> eyes. People get kicked out. I mean, it's, yeah. it's – I, I don't even know if they do it anymore. I, Dan Walker punched me right in the chest in the middle of a church ball game, and he was on my own team. <laughs> yeah. And so you, so you, you were very injury prone. Well, I wasn't injury prone, but I when I played, and it was always at like nine o'clock at night. You get a bunch of guys, you go play, and you had to have. I mean, you got to have ten guys, so you just invite whoever. Mm-hmm. And, you, and I it, will just say this: I think church ball was uh, kind of the equivalent of uh, the Mormon guys' therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because you're mm-hmm. you're a good guy, you're holding it in all day long, you're nice <laughs> to everybody, and then church ball and it becomes jungle ball. A lot of aggression, and it's elbows and pushing, and yeah, oh yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. So you're in there. You got ten guys, uh, eight of them who can play. Two guys are just there to fill seats. Well, I, and I had a breakaway, and I was going up for a dunk, and a guy took my legs out, and I landed on my tailbone and shattered my L four L five. And wow. uh, yeah, so you know, and at first I wasn't married at that age of twenty. You know, I was probably twenty one, twenty two when that happened. 
and uh, got married, 23, and then at 25 had health insurance, right? For the first time in my life, I get married. My wife has health insurance. I'm like, I'm going to go to the doctor. My back is just killing me. Ibuprofen's not working. Stretching's not working. So you hadn't really been seen for four years. You had this injury for three or four years and, and no treatment. Right. You right. just rub some dirt chronic, on it. Chronic pain. Chronic pain. Okay. I grew up on a farm, right? So yeah, you, you just if feel it's it. not bleeding, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to the doctor. Yeah. yeah. So, and just, you know, continue to play through it. Just always that achy, hurt feeling. Went to a doctor, MRI, all the stuff they do. Told me about my, you know, they want to do surgery. I'm like, ah, I don't want to do surgery because it was all these, they want to put a rod in your back or they want to do this or go through your stomach. And I'm just like, I'm not doing that. So he gives me Lortab. And it started off with take one, you know, every four hours, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you have to. And like, is this okay. 90s? When is this happening? This is 95. Okay. 1995. Right. So that's right after I got married. We had insurance. And then 95, I go to the doctor and uh, and opioids were, were flowing yeah. at this point in yeah. our, our history. Lots of opioid prescriptions. Well, okay. I've learned a lot about doctors, you know, over the years. It's just, you know, they, they go, they're there to treat a symptom. And a lot, you know, back then, the addiction, really, they didn't quite understand that people were doctor shopping and coming to get scripts filled left and right. Oh, you got a pain? Oh, you got a cough? This is what you need to do. So before you had taken that Lord tab, uh, any party in, in your early years in high school, uh, any of this, you know, beers on the weekend or anything like that? Or were you just a pretty straight shooter? <clears throat> so, uh, you know, my mom, alcoholic. That whole side of the family is alcoholic, so I kind of stayed away from it. I mean, I did party once in a while on the weekends, <clears throat> but it didn't control my life. It wasn't something that I felt like I had to have to function, you know, and I was in my mind just making sure I was aware of that. Um, so addiction does run in your family. Yeah, yeah. My mom's side, all alcoholics. My dad's side, all opiate addicts. Dad died of a drug overdose. Uh, mom's got some brain issues going on from alcoholism. And then I've lost four or five relatives from death by suicide and addiction in the last five years. Wow. Wow, that's, so, that's a really yeah. heavy family history. Um, how old were you when your father died of an overdose? So he gave me up for adoption when I was four um, to my my mom's new husband who adopted me. And so from four until 25, I never knew him. And then I reconnected at the age of 25 and learned about him. You know, he wasn't a nice guy. He wasn't a good guy. And uh, right around that time, I learned he was addicted to opiates. I was starting my opiate journey at that point. And I think that kind of maybe connected us a little bit. In a weird way. I mean I, yeah. I mean, I can totally see it. I mean, you know, it's like, well, he's got this. I'm come from him. And so maybe this is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he and he was a scary guy. I mean, he was 6'9", you know, 280 pounds, a big guy. And, uh, you know, at first he was nice. And then I could tell what drugs over the years had done to him. He played professional basketball and I think had over 30 back surgeries and a pain pump put in. And, like, his life just wasn't wasn't good. And uh, I didn't know that's what I was kind of heading down, you know, that road. So and, you say at 25, you get the first prescription of Loratab. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say take one to every one to four hours, depending on pain. And did you start out doing what they said? Started out doing what they said for the first two or three years. And then I think late 1997, um, Oxycontin 
was kind of introduced. You know, I think it was originally done come out for cancer patients. You know, to have that long extended release. For those who don't know, I, I oxycotton. It was a time released capsule, right? Mm-hmm. And so you could put it in, and it would keep you pain free for eight to ten hours. I don't know. I've never yeah. taken it, but that's right. That's yeah. That's what it was created because I, I was taking so much lower tap when I went to him that he said, "Let's try this." And uh, as soon as as soon as I tried oxycotton, I knew I was in for a ride. Really, it was that. It was that instant. It was on. Yeah, yep. Forty milligrams. What he he gave me to start with, and uh, feeling that euphoric feeling all day long when you first start taking it. My pain didn't. I didn't have any pain. I had energy. I could play basketball. You know, I felt good. I was doing better at work at the time. Like I thought that was kind of. This was the missing piece. Yeah, yeah. And I and I had a lot of childhood trauma um, over the years that. I truly believe led into my long use as an adult, which I didn't understand until I, you know, found recovery and worked through those issues. But uh, I grew up the generation where you just swept it under the rug and didn't talk about it. You know, growing up in a kind of a farm community, you know, people, you just didn't talk about it. You know, you just swept it under. And I think it led into, you know, as you were talking, Dr. Matt, about mirror work. You know, I did a lot of mirror work um, in my recovery and, you know, I hated myself for a long time. But Probably Oxycontin, <clears throat> first three or four years, um, probably six years into my 12-year addiction, I was okay. I was, ma- I was managing. I was functioning. I was high level. I was, had a job. I was going to sporting events. I was doing things. That's the bait and switch of addiction because, uh, I mean, so many people who get in it for, the, for, the, for a certain amount of time, it works. Mm-hmm. Oh, it yeah. does what it's supposed to, you know, and, and that's the thing is alcohol, you know, it it tricks you. So it is a bait and switch. It was like, hey, this is going to answer all these problems for you. This is going to help you do this better. And as you said, I mean, it, you were basketball pain free. You were doing better at your job. And the only thing that you were doing different was taking this little pill. And so why would you think that this pill is helping? Yeah. Yep. Well, and, uh, you know, I, just to kind of bring it back to the reality of it, you used the word identity. Part of your identity was being an athlete, and it sounds like basketball was a really important outlet in your life, an important part of who you were and what you did. And without with that level of pain all the time, I'm sure there was, and correct me if I'm wrong, so, some sort of internal dialogue like, if I, if I can't play basketball... Like, what am I going to do in life? That's part mm-hmm. of who I am, and it's my outlet. And if I can't cure this pain, I won't be able to play basketball. So I, I think if if the listeners kind of dig deep and think, well, what's something in your life that's that important, that's that critical to how you function, what you do every day, now think about not being able to do it. You'd be really motivated to find a solution. And so, yeah, if you've got pain and that pill takes it away all day, shoot. How tall are you? Uh, six five. So can you imagine being six five and having to tell people, "No, I can't play basketball." <laughs> I mean, the people do it all the time, but that was your identity. You were probably good at it. You're probably the first picked on every team because of your height <laughs> and your ability, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, that stripped away from you. Yeah, you know, you were fighting like to keep that there, right? Well, the dream was, you know, I had an opportunity to go play for a semi pro team in Washington State, Yakima Sun Kings. I was playing on all the pro-am leagues here and all of that stuff, and it really was my identity. And it was my identity from growing up because life was so – it wasn't normal, like men in and out of our house. My mom had different guys all the time. So everybody – I'd get attached to somebody and they'd leave. I'd get attached to somebody and leave. Basketball, you dribble it, it comes back. You dribble it, it comes back. So it never left. So it was part of who I was growing up. 
that was the one thing that I could always know I could go and do and get stress free, right? And feel good about who I was as a person. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's <clears throat> that sounds to me like you've done a lot of therapy work on that, yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of recognizing how as we grow up when we have uh, stressors, especially chronic stressors or traumas, um, kids are very adept at finding solutions like what can I do to fill this void to help myself? And uh, in your case, it sounds like basketball filled that void. And so yeah. even more than I thought when I started this little part of the conversation, I, I really do see how how central basketball was to how you felt about yourself. Yeah. So for three years, you said the Oxycontin were working. And well, you didn't say working. You said you were managing. Managing, yeah. But as you know, you get to a certain dose and then it works and then it doesn't – you don't get that level. So you have to go and get it increased and then increased. And I mean by the time over the years – and then I added alcohol in it, you know, and then I added Xanax into it and then I added fentanyl into it. And then I – you know, I just kept adding this cocktail to it, still searching for that first – the way I felt when I first started taking it, right? Because you just become so used to it. But at that point, you know, I'm losing jobs. I'm overdosing. I'm having seizures. I've multiple car wrecks, rollovers, um, you know, getting arrested, doctor shopping. I mean, it just – the list goes on. I mean, that's what addiction does. It just continues to take everything from you. And you summed it up so nicely, but we want to get into a, a little bit more than that. How about your wife? Was she sticking around for all this? So I was using only by myself, right? At the, at the point, I was just going to doctors. You know, one doctor, and then I was going to nine doctors, right? Mm-hmm. And she just thought – she recalls – there's a lot that I don't remember that I have to be advised of during this time. And she goes, I remember the day you came to me and said, I think I'm a drug addict. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, I think I'm, a, I'm addicted to opioids. And she's like, but a doctor's prescribing it. What do you mean? You're not getting heroin off the street, right? You're not mm-hmm. doing all this other stuff. And I wasn't out partying. It was just me causing all this chaos in our house. And that's when she started looking at it. <clears throat> but she was also an enabler. So, you know, anytime we went somewhere or car wreck, she wanted to make it seem like our little house was put together. Um, but she got sick and got ulcers. And, I mean, it does a lot of damage on families. And I'll tell you what, we this month we'll be married 27 years. Congratulations. Thank you. But uh, that just goes back to a point that we all often hit here on the podcast is addiction is a family disease. Although you're the one that has the disease, the rest of the family really feels the weight of that addiction and it it can burn through a household quick. Yeah. Well, and I'm a master manipulator. Most addicts are, you know, so I can convince you that you're, you know, crazy when it's all me doing this. Right. And convinced her that, you know, this is all in her head and not, not the case. And at the time, you know, I've got three kids growing up, and my son is seeing all this and seeing what's going on. And, you know, I do, I do believe in that passed down trauma, right? It was passed down to me, so I need to break this. I need to stop this because I don't want it passed down to my grandkids. You know? And so you're managing, then all of a sudden you're losing jobs, your wife's yeah. getting ulcers. Uh, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, we will talk about a rock bottom and uh, – do you have one of those? I do. Let's yeah. hear it. Yeah. So I got sober in 2009. Um, I remember 420, 
2009, which I had no idea what 420 was. That's when the weed smokers <laughs> light up. Yeah. <clears throat> if you know what yeah. that is, you go see a doctor. Go yeah. home and ask your kids <laughs> if they know what 420 is and then sit down and have a conversation with them yeah. if they yeah. say yes. They'll say yes. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, over the last five years, cops at the house all the time. I think my um, our local bishop kept me out of jail multiple times. Love him. And, uh, you know, I didn't Did understand. Did you have the, DUIs? You mentioned you car know, accidents I, and so rollovers and no DUIs, huh? No. Interesting. No. Got arrested for doctor shopping. Um, that was one of the part things where my first year of sobriety, it, I was turned down for 23 jobs because I had misdemeanor charges. Okay. Um, you know, but uh, today it's all expunged. You were talking about that earlier, so I wanted to touch on that. You know, it took me 10 years, but it, it happened. Good for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, wrecking cars, you know, life is getting just completely unmanageable. And, you know, my guardian angel was looking out for me, and I didn't understand each step. It wasn't enough for me. Getting arrested wasn't enough for me. Um, wrecking cars, overdose and seizures wasn't enough for me, right? I figured I was going to die by the age of 35. I mean, that's what I thought. I just thought this is my path. I don't know how to stop it. And isn't it crazy that you were okay with that? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? That, that, that's how bad this addiction is. And you go, well, I'm probably going to make it to about 35, so I might as well just keep what I'm doing. <laughs> and the brain doesn't go, hey, maybe we can stop this. <laughs> maybe we can change our future. Yeah. Maybe we can adjust some things and get a little more longevity out of this. But we just go, eh, okay. Well, and I also think that's sort of the, the natural outcome of chronic childhood trauma. And you mentioned having a lot of traumas yeah. and, and – uh, and people tend to be fairly accepting and self de- uh, of their own demise and self-destructive even when they have trauma because uh, people often feel fairly worthless by the time they get to adult life. And so mm-hmm. uh, that just fuels the use, right? If I feel useless and if I've kind of gone through all this trauma, life is overwhelming for a person um, in those situations, then – you know, escaping it, numbing it, uh, feels good. And, and it pales in compare or, you know, pales in comparison to, you know, things that would normally make a person stop and have that conversation you were just talking about, Casey, where it's like, Oh, I wrecked a car, but I'm going to die by the time I'm 35 anyway. So it's kind of makes sense that this is happening and we just keep using and using. So you had multiple, what people would call rock bottoms, but mm-hmm. they weren't enough for you. Yeah. I was still digging. Yeah. You know, we got up. So in, in 2009, I remember um, the pharmacy. So I called my doctor. I needed another prescription of Xanax, right? So they called it in. I show up to the pharmacy, and I guess I had one refill plus the new one, and they gave me both, 120 each. So here I am, full-blown addiction. They give me 240 Xanax. I mean, I was like, in my mind, holy hell. You right? won the lottery. Seventh heaven, right? And things were not good at home. You know, at all, of course. And uh, my wife was keeping it together, taking care of the three kids and working and taking care of the house. And I'm just blowing everything up. I mean, literally. And so we're arguing. And over a three or four day period, I took all 240 of them. Whoa. Like my. Wow. Yeah. I was up. I mean, I was up to 400 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. I mean, it just enough wasn't enough. Yeah. It was just, you know, and. uh I remember I got behind the wheel of a car and I guess I threw some clothes in the back and I guess I was heading out to Wendover. Like, I don't know what I was doing, but took off. And I think it was about one in the morning on 420. And I do remember I had the cruise on 120 and the window down and the music just cranked. 
And uh, I was probably, like you were saying, Casey, yelling at myself, right? Because I hate – I mean, addicts hate themselves when we're doing this. We just don't know how to stop. And I guess I rolled the car multiple times. I thank God every day I didn't have anybody with me. I didn't hurt anybody. And uh, Jaws of Life took me out of the car, and then they took me to the Tuella Hospital. And I I remember this uh, vividly that uh, I was looking down at myself. And I get a smack in the back of the head, and I, I, I just don't know what. Like, what? I look over, and it's my guardian angel. And I look down. They're cutting my shirt off. They got the paddles out. They're bringing me, trying to bring me back to life. And the more I talk about it and think about it is they were trying to bring me back, but I think they were waiting to find out what my answers were, what the questions he was going to ask me. He's like, you got three options at this point. And I, feel, I, I really feel like any addict that's in addiction has three choices. I'm going to either choose recovery and I'm going to change my life. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing and I'm probably going to kill somebody and end up in prison the rest of my life. Or I'm going to die of a drug overdose. And he told me, you need to pick one right now because I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And uh, I chose recovery. So just to be clear, this is a conversation you're having with a guardian angel? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. I chose recovery. And uh, – when it took me two weeks to get into the treatment facility. I spent 95 days there and uh, changed my life. Um, you know, I worked through loving myself. Um, you know, I worked through the pain and misery that I had that I didn't understand as a child because my goal is to be the best husband and father and be the best person I can in recovery. And uh, I get to do that every day now. So where did you go to recovery? I went to a place called the Ark of Little Cottonwood. And spent 95 days there in now, Utah. I did 45 where I went, and a lot of people have done 30 to 60. 95 days, I, I mean, probably is about the time that most addicts need, yeah. but unfortunately can't get it one way or another because yeah. of job, insurance, money, or whatever have you. Yeah. Why 95 days? Uh, well, you know what? So I'm blessed to have um, – so I went to – my bishop at the time, right? And I wasn't active in the church, but our, we were good friends, and my son was friends with his friend, and said, I need help. And then I went and spoke to the stake president, and uh, I remember going to the stake president going, I, you know, I have no money, no insurance. And, and, and in 2009, residential, I don't believe um, insurance covered a residential treatment. And I remember sitting and looking, and I, I just said, he goes, why do you want to – What's, what's your purpose? And just for listeners that may not be familiar, so in the uh, LDS or Mormon church, uh, there are there are church leaders that are assigned over geographical areas, mm-hmm. congregation. congregation. So the bishop would be the the ecclesiastical leader of that congregation, and then the stake president would be uh, a leader uh, who has. Um, stewardship over several congregations. So these are people that are in charge of the church in your area. And uh, a lot of their responsibility is to help members with a variety of things, including welfare types of things. So Yeah. And also kind of the sacred funds that they have. The funds. And yeah. the funds can help families right. who can't pay their mortgage or have health care problems. Yeah. But you have to go in and kind of talk and explain why you need that help. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with the state president and just talking with him. And I said, you know, I'm not done. There's more to it. I got to, you know, be a father and a husband. I need to turn my life around. I need to share my hope and experiences with others that have been down this path. And I remember him looking at me going, there's nothing I wouldn't do to, to save your soul. 
And that's how my journey began. We're going to find out more about his journey. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. We're here with Travis Whitaker. Uh, he said in 2009 he found sobriety at the Little Ark. Is that correct? The Ark of Little Cottonwood Canyon. Yep. Close enough. Um, and uh, <laughs> while you were there, uh, what kind of modalities did you use to find recovery? Like I know for myself, uh, mindfulness, meditation, I really vibed with mm-hmm. and exercise as well. And those seem to be my three pillars uh, that my recovery is based on. Uh, and throughout this podcast, we like to highlight certain ways people found their recovery. Now, a guy who has got 12 years like you, which is amazing. Congratulations Thank on you. that. What are the things that really kind of were aha moments in your recovery? Well, and to answer your first question, so 12 steps was a big modality, you know, that equine therapy exercise. And I actually found yoga. There was a DVD in the basement and I remember putting it in one day and I started doing stretching. And the next thing you know, next week I got everybody down there doing stretching, doing yoga, which actually changed my life and actually helped my back. You're one of those? It actually changed my life and allowed me to actually get back into sports. I love yoga, and, and I think yoga does amazing things. <laughs> but my problem with yogis are they say it fixes everything. Well, I'm not surprised that you clicked with that because you're an athlete. And yeah. yoga is like a very active meditation, right? Like there's a lot of meditation involved with it. But people who are, are athletes, they live in their body. And if your body's not feeling good, they don't feel good. And so I'm not too surprised at that. But talk about the equine therapy or don't, don't go look it up. Horse therapy. Uh, what, uh, that's a first person to come on the show and talk about that. So the other night I sat down with my kids and we were watching 28 days with Sandra Bullock. Uh huh. And that's when she goes to recovery. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Probably not the best show to watch with my kids. I haven't seen it. But uh, they did some I thought e- you were talking about 28 Days Later, the no. zombie movie, which that had my attention. But, but they did yeah. some equine therapy, and it's amazing to see how an animal can react of the kind of positivity or negativity that you're putting off. Isn't that kind of the, somewhat yeah. of it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's that trust thing is a big deal. And, you know, horses, horses are amazing. And animals are amazing when it comes to healing process, whether it's a horse or I mean, or a dog, to be honest with you. It's a big deal. And equine, I think more and more people are starting to do that now um, with the equine. Um, but it's one of those things in recovery. you got to find what works for you mm-hmm. because it's not, it's not one, one way. It's, you know. See, to me, recovery is a buffet. Yeah. And I'm grabbing my tray and I'm going to walk down and I'm going to pull the things off the counter that mm-hmm. work for me, that make sense to me, yep. that, that, that my taste palates go, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, I, I can do this and I can sign up for this. <clears throat> yep. And so what about the 12 step? Because we've had a lot of people here and, you know, I've often said that I'm not a 12 step guy, but I'm not going to talk smack on 12 step because it's done a lot of good in the community. What do you like about the 12 step? I like that there's a, it's a process. And you have to work through every different thing, you know, admitting you're powerless and going through, you know, step four. I mean, it's it's just a process. And I think that being accountable is something that's a big deal, you know, and going back and making amends. For me, making amends was probably the best thing, you know, to go back to my wife and say, everything that you called me out on was 100% true. And she was cool with that? Absolutely. Well, we've done a lot. We've done a lot of work. Uh, yeah. I'm 12 years, I can imagine. Did yeah. you ever have anybody who said, nah, I don't want to hear it? No. No. I, I mean, at f- the first few years, my son, 
I'll be honest. And because I'm the type of guy that's like, you know, it's about me, right? Most addicts are. It's about me. Let's hug it out and let's end it. You know, I apologize for hurting you. And then you think you can just hug it out. But it took a long time with him. He wanted nothing to do with me. And uh, I had to realize it's not about me. I'm here when you're ready, you know. And I, and I had to learn that in the 12 years of recovery. And this is probably at about year six. Um, my wife and I split up for a year, you know, during my recovery because she wasn't fully healing at that time. You know, and I think that's a big thing when we talk about the recovery journey. Um, you know, it's a process for everybody. You know, I am a new, improved person. I will never be the old Travis. There are some traits from the old Travis, but I'm new and improved. So, you know, we can't bring up the past and use it to try to bring somebody down. You've got to move through that. And I think that's why a lot of relationships don't work. You know, if you really love each other, you got to figure out a way to work through it. We had, uh, I think it was Lizzie Dankers, and she was on one of the earlier podcasts. Go back and listen to it. It was a very good one. But her husband uh, went into recovery with her. He wasn't an addict because their therapist told them at the time, she's going to grow up and out. And either you grow up and out with her or you grow apart. And so he loved her enough and said, I'm in. And That happens a lot, and I think a, a part of that process also is – the uh, the damage, the trauma that's mm-hmm. happening to the people uh, around the addict. So like you said, your son, your wife, immediate family members are so chronically affected by your use. And, and like you said, uh, addicts tend to focus on themselves. Uh, I think you've even said before, Casey, that you, you used to say, well, what do you care if I'm drinking? Like, it's just Yeah, me. what do you care? It's my body. It's, yeah. it's my life. But I'm not doing this to hurt you. I think when uh, – I think it's a it, – I know it's a step of real insight and personal growth when the addict who is now in recovery realizes – it, it, even the recovery isn't all about me. I have to be patient with my family members. They need help and support too. It's not just the addict that needs to go to treatment. It's the whole family. Even though they weren't using, they were traumatized by the use. Having your your father, your husband uh, be so um, chronically out of your life and unhealthy and causing damage and scary events for a child to know that you know, where's the car you know, the, oh, the car got wrecked last night. Dad was in a car accident last night. The car has been towed away. You may not think that's a big deal because as an adult, you might think, um, well, actually, I can dollar and sense that in my mind. Okay, well, what do we do to get a new car and blah, 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 you know, because you can abstract, you know, what that means and you know you're okay. For a child, something like a car, that's part of the family's stability. What are we going to do? They don't know how to handle those things. They're that puts him in a traumatic situation and a very insecure situation. Is dad going to be okay when he drives away this time? You know, and that, that's, that's that, that daily stress on a child's mind. And so it makes a lot of sense that when an addict gets into recovery and says, okay, I'm, I'm okay now. We're all good. We're happy family again. Yep. Other people in the family push back and say, I'm not okay. Because so much attention is given, and rightfully so, to the addict when it comes to that point. Yes, it starts there, sure. You yeah, know, it has to. But I, I went to a recovery with this guy, and he'd been to three recoveries. Hmm. And I said, what did you learn on the first one? And he goes, that it's all about the family. He goes, because I went in for 30 days. I came back, and I said, hey, dad's home. He's fixed. Everything's good. And everybody was standoffish. And they go, we understand that you're good in your good place. 
but we need our own time to heal, and mm-hmm. we're not good because we mm-hmm. were so focused on making sure you didn't die and burn up everything we have that we didn't stop and take care of ourselves because you needed it more. And so now we need to heal. And yeah. that's not what he wanted to hear, no. so he went back out again because he thought just by getting sober, everything was going to be fixed. Yeah. And that goes to your point that you're 12 years sober. But you separated from your wife after six years into sobriety. Right. And so, I mean, that must have been a mind blower. You know what I mean? To be like, wait a minute, I'm sober now for six years, and now you want to bolt? Well, you know, it's funny because the first, I mean, when I was in addiction, it was getting really bad. It was all, you know, how's Nancy doing? She's amazing. She's keeping things together, right? And Mm -hmm. then I get sober. It's like, oh, look at Travis. Look at the amazing things he's doing. And it's no longer about her at all. So she's lost in the shuffle. <clears throat> she's not worked really through her issues. And now here I am doing well. And it's like, well, what about, what about us now too? You know, and I get that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I do, I do a lot of work with families. And I think it's really important because we need to stop that from continuing. You know, I want to make sure that when I got sober and when my wife and I worked through it, like I had signed divorce papers. I, I, I was at the point where I'm like, I want you to be happy. I want you to keep everything. I will start over. You and the kids are more important. I've done all this damage. You know, I've blown a lot of money. I've wasted the 401k, you know, nonstop getting title loans on cars at like 400% interest. And the family would come in and save us every time. And I was like, I, I want you to be happy. And then <clears throat> over, over that year, year and a half, her mom died who we were all real close with. And probably 30, I want to say 30 days or 60 days after that, her brother shot himself. And he was a prison guard at the Utah State Prison. And mm. nobody had any idea there was any mental health issue or anything going on. It was just a surprise. Um, and it kind of brought us back together where she's like, you know what? I love him. Like life's short. Let's, let's see if we can figure this out. Because over that time, I kept trying to ask her out on a date. You know, I'm like, I want to see you. I see you. And what you learn in recovery and in long-term recovery, it's not about the words. It's about the actions. Mm-hmm. So I had to stop talking, prove that I'm doing well in my life. And that's when I started in the treatment industry. And uh, things just kind of took place. Have you had any <clears throat> relapses? It doesn't sound like you're talking about any relapses. No. Wow. No. What, what do you attribute that to? <clears throat> Getting well. <laughs> but staying yeah, well. How did yeah. you stay? How have you stayed well? What yeah, do you Are do? you doing something to maintain your sobriety? I mean, are you still working the 12 steps? I, I don't know how this 12 steps works. Yeah. Is there, is, is there like a. I don't, I don't, no, I don't continue to do the 12 steps. How do I stay sober? Uh, you know, again, I wake up every day and I'm thankful for my life. You know, I've lived in so much misery for so long and being so unhappy and faking it that I'm at a place now where I get to help people. I get to suit up. I get to show up. I get to do, you know, I'm also an interventionist. I get to go into crisis situations with families and I get to give them hope. You know, does that keep me sober? No, but I get to show up for other people, you know, and I get to be a good person today, you know, and my integrity is everything to me. And if I, and I I found a way that's worked for me and what I do is continue to do that every day. You know, if I get stressed out on life, I go to the golf course. I go, I go to the movie. Oh, you know, speak I have in to Casey's search. language. Yeah, the golf course the golf is my course. happy place. Yeah, I go do things that make me happy because I do have to take care of my wellness and 
before I can show up for other people. So I've just figured that out, you know, along the way. It's not been perfect. You know, I started gambling for a minute and then for six months. And then I realized, what am I doing? Right. So then I stopped that. And uh, then I, you know, found some other things. Maybe I'd go buy shoes I didn't need because I was looking for that. That, that excitement. High? Yes. Yes. So there's, you know, along the way you figure it out. Now you brought it up. And so I'd like to talk about it for just a second uh, in intervention, because we've had uh, one interventionist or maybe two on uh, in the Couple, course of yeah. two and a half years. Uh, what does an interventionist do in your eyes? So an interventionist, what they, what I, what I do is I want to help the family and the addict get help. Because when you think about it, the family is in a place where they're enabling and they're, they're thinking that they're trying to keep – what they're doing is keeping that person alive, but it's actually keeping them sick. So I want to come in. I want to get – and the first time I get a phone call, you know, and I get the family dynamics and I understand the situation because everybody just thinks, oh, Bob, who's a heroin addict, is the problem, mm-hmm. right? Well, where's Bob living? Well, he lives in the basement. Okay, he's 35 years old, lives with his mom. Mom's paying for everything, buying the heroin. He's not have to be responsible I have to get the family on board to understand that they're part of this problem. And if I'm going to do the intervention to offer your loved one help, I need you to get help. You know, whether it's you go to a week away to a program and learn about self-care and boundaries and addiction and enabling. Um, there has to be something because if you get the loved one help, they come home to that same situation. Nothing mm-hmm. changes if nothing changes. Right. I love that one. So you're right back. And I think that's why we see a lot, a lot of relapse. You know, when somebody comes home, they're either thrown back into the fire of who they used to be, or they're coming back to an unhealthy relationship or to the same situation they left from. So it's, as you talked about earlier, Casey, you got the family dynamics has to be involved in all of this. How do you do that, though? I mean, uh, you're walking into, so just so people know, an interventionist is walking into one of the more difficult times in this process, I think where you probably have one or more family members who've reached out. We need, we have, we have a loved one who's, who's an addict. They need help. So you're, you're probably talking to an addict who is going to be resistant because they, they haven't usually sought, you know, the, the help. And then you have family members that have a misconception about why this person's an addict or what's keeping them in their addiction. And they can get defensive quickly. I would assume uh, when you tell them, hey, by the way, you guys are part of this process and need to go get some help. So how do you manage all of that? That seems like a tall order. Yeah. You know what? I think being real and honest because this disease, you know, wants to kill us and it wants to take everything around you away, right? And, uh, you know, it, it's several phone calls at first and some Zoom calls and getting to understand the dynamics and the family and just kind of what's going on and learning about the childhood. I mean, I have to get all of the information. Um, and then it just comes down to really, you know, it, you're, you're helping kill them. You know, are you ready to bury them? I mean, that's the honest truth. And do you say it that plainly to them? I absolutely yeah. do. How do they usually re- respond to that? They, they respond and they go, I never thought of that. Yeah. It's usually in a positive way. I think we're the ones, people providing interventions of any kind, therapy or whatnot. I think we're the ones that are more afraid uh, of that sort of directness than the person receiving it. I think the person receiving it mm-hmm. usually when it's correct, when it, when it, when it fits the situation, it's almost a relief to them to, to have somebody speak plainly yeah. about a situation. Well, they've been dealing with an addict. that's just been lying to them for years. They're, they're just, there's, they don't know what's going on. And I tell them, I'm going to come in. I'm going to tell you what, how, what we need to do. 
I'm going to tell you how it needs to be. Like, I'm not here to be your best friend. I'm here to help change your life and get your loved one help and get your family dynamics back on track. And I think sometimes when people call an interventionist, they want them to show up and validate what they've been doing. Uh-huh, you, you, uh-huh. you know, and be like, you know, I, I did this and, you know, and I'm. Wow, mom, you're doing a great job. Yeah, you know, and I, and I can't believe they're still out there. And yeah. when all of a sudden they're putting, you know, and they but go, I hey. Think, I think the truth cuts through things. I, I think that. The truth will set you free. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, you should put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> um, but I think that, that that is true. It does set you free. And it also helps people. It it just rings true. When, a true, when it's true, it, it means something different than all the lies you have to sift through all the time. And I would imagine uh, you have more positive responses from that approach than, than people might think. Yeah. You know, I've been in the recovery world for about three years now. And, you know... It doesn't seem like I get the questions about interventionists all that much. Are you doing quite a bit of them? Or, I mean, how does that work? I mean, I, I know Utahns, uh, and the way they think is, is they can usually do it a little bit cheaper. They'll, they'll do it. You know what I mean? And, and, and I'm not knocking anybody. What? Are we, we're cheap here in Utah? What? Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> known for that. Utah's favorite F word is free. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, but I mean, I think uh, the value of a good in- intervention is, is worth it, you know, um, because you can come in and be that third party where you don't have anything vested in it except for the well-being of both of them. And yeah. you're going to be honest and tell each side that, you know what, you probably could be doing it better. Well, it's like, go, you know, I tell people, you got you need to go to therapy. You need to go to couple therapy. What you're doing together is you're, you're, it's not working Mm-mm. because you interrupt each other. You say that's not true. It becomes an argument. When you have somebody else that's not part of your family dynamics there to control the situation, people listen. They really do. I don't have a lot of people that fight back. Um, I'm pretty good at what I do, and I think it's sharing my passion, and I've been through it, right? Mm-hmm. The goal is to get help for them. The goal is to get them to have a better life, a better quality of life. But the real key is getting them to understand that they're worth it and they deserve it. I mean, that's the key, you know, mm-hmm. they're and, worth it and they deserve it. And and when you're not doing interventions, you're also working for a recovery center in California. I do. Yep. Yep. I work for True Recovery in Newport Beach and uh, we have all levels of care, residential detox PHP, which is partial hospitalization, IOP. And it's an amazing trauma program that's ran by Dr. Megan Markham, Mm -hmm. who's very well known. And uh, I'll tell you what, I I love seeing people get the gifts that I've been received, right? That was my favorite. When I was in the house for more than three weeks and I'd see new people come in here, the first week they were kind of in a haze. And when all of a sudden they realized what kind of gift was put on their foot, right below their footstep, they would be like, whoa. This is amazing. And that, I mean, it just, it, it gives me chills just thinking about it. But you got to do the work. That's the thing, mm-hmm. right? It's like you can do this all day long. And if you don't grab on, you know, then it's, I mean, it's not going to work for you. It's, it's, you know, recovery, you have to jump in as you've learned in three years, you know, and it's going to be rocky and you're going to deal with past stuff and you're going to deal with like I did past legal stuff, but you just got to find a way to figure out. And I think the more you do that, the more proud you are of yourself. Amen. Hey, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, do you have a phone number or a website that maybe yeah. they want an intervention or they want to find out more about you know your recovery center? Where do they go? Yeah, so truerecovery.com for Newport Beach. And then Living Recovery Interventions is my intervention business. And my phone number is 801-573-4188. Uh, Dr. Matt, any takeaways? 
Uh, so many, actually. But uh, the one that keeps coming back to me that we haven't really talked a lot about is um, know your family history. You have this really uh, prominent history of addiction in your family. And if, if I think if people knew more about their family history of addiction, if they talked about it when kids are young and growing up, uh, I do think that that's a type of prevention that can help people make better choices uh, or be like our sponsor, um, Know Your Script, mm-hmm. uh, teaches us to do to know how to talk to your doctors when you do have an in- injury and you do need pain management. Um, uh, I think that's something that that's a great takeaway from your story. Um, but thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And I will say you asked me earlier, Casey, have I learned some stuff? One of my very favorite things every week is knowing what people are doing now. And I am always impressed on how dedicated people who are in recovery are to to giving back and turning their own professions into opportunities to help others. So thank you so much for, you know, doing that for people in, in our communities here in Utah and California. I just think it's tremendous. Thank you. And the thing I like about this podcast, and, and I don't want to blow your mind uh, to our listeners, but uh, most of the time we just open up the mics and have a conversation and we see where it goes. And it's kind of an organic, yeah, it's an organic conversation. <laughs> but if you go back and listen, uh, there usually becomes a theme that pops out of each of the podcasts. And for me, the one that I gravitated towards is identity. And we didn't know he was going to talk about basketball being his identity. Right. And in the beginning, when it was just me and you, we talked about my identity being on TV, and that's who I thought I was. In reality, mm-hmm. that's not who I was. And I think if you go back and look at you know, ad, ad, addicts, um, the identity. And, it's and, a huge, huge thing. And, and that's a good starting point for anybody to look into their addiction and, and find out what their identity is. Absolutely. So thank you for stopping by and listening today. We love you and we mean it. Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot, it's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.